0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Grace to you. It's good to be back again after a couple of week hiatus. We are walking through my book, one chapter a week, How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament. And today we're on chapter 8, historical context, historical context. So this is the first chapter in our third part of this book. The whole book's broken down into five units, uh, which I synthesized by the acronym TOKMA. Text, Observation, Context, Meaning, Application. And we're in context right now. How to understand and apply the Old Testament context. And it's broken down into two units. Historical context and literary context. And Lord willing, that'll be what we cover this week and next. So when we say historical context, we are talking about how to understand the historical situation from which the author composed the text and to identify any historical details that the author mentions or assumes. So, there are numerous shared assumptions that are part of every communicative event. When you begin to dialogue with someone, they're going to assume that you know the language that they're using. They're going to assume that you know the people that they're talking about or the events they're referring to. They're going to make claims that assume you know locations. You know something about certain restaurants. Without historical context, communication begins to break down at certain points. So we're going to cover four different areas. One, I'm going to introduce the whole concept of assessing historical context. Then we're going to cover some key spheres that we need to be thinking about with respect to historical context, some guidelines for engaging this concept, and then, if we have time, I will give an extended example of historical context. So, the nature of historical context... What's at stake is, where does the passage fit in space and time, and why does it matter? The challenge with a lot of historical context with respect to teaching or even commentaries is that they give you a whole bunch of background information, but it doesn't always seem relevant. Why do I need to know this? And I, as an instructor, might do lots and lots of study learning about historical Context, and yet if I can't find relevance, specific relevance for the passage that we're working through, I have no need to share it. If I just share information to you because I think it's really cool, then I have just supplanted the Word of God, and my responsibility is to make clear God's Word. If I can't show why it's important, then I'm just lifting up my head, and that's not what our goal is. Often, study Bible notes will include lots of fascinating information, but they still don't clarify, so what? What's the payoff here when it comes to actually understanding the Word of God? And that's why we want to understand historical context. There's a number of shared assumptions that the authors, human authors, speaking in a certain time in history... Make with respect to their initial audiences. And the bridge between the ancient world and the modern world, the ancient word and the modern world, it, the bridge is quite big. And so often there are elements that are expected to be understood that we just don't understand because we're so far removed geographically, we're so far removed temporally, and Culturally, there's a lot of things that go on in here that, while in certain parts of the world are actually more common, up here in Minnesota, it just doesn't quite sound like we know life is like. Flat-roofed houses, donkeys. Go to Ethiopia, you can see some of that. Lots of donkeys. But here, uh, it's not as much apart. So... When you think historical context, what kinds of questions would come to mind? Specifically, like, put, put hands and feet to them. Think about elements in this book, and you're going to say that's a historical context issue. Frame it like a question. Anybody? Okay. Who is the original audience of what? Of which one? The one you're working on. The one you're working on. Okay, well, who is the original audience of whatever writing you're working on? So, who was Amos targeting? Northern Kingdom? Southern Kingdom? Even a frame it like that identifies he was speaking during the divided monarchy. And that informs our reading. That he's dealing with a lot of people that are very wealthy also narrows it down that we're dealing with the northern kingdom in relation to Samaria and not the southern kingdom in relation to Judah. That's historical context stuff. What else? I never thought of this, but you could ask what would be in the morning newspaper's headlines at this point? Okay. So, uh, you No, know, Assyria uh, just invaded, uh, you know, Eastern Persia uh, or something like that. Sure. Sure. So, what would be in the morning headlines if you happen to be Ezekiel? We're going to see, this morning, if we get there, we're going to see some headlines. What would have been there? What would the pictures have looked like on the front page? How would they have been thinking about space and time? What would their worldview have been like? It's a very different World that this Bible talks about, where no one was an atheist. Zero atheists with respect to this biblical text. Everyone outside of Israel, inside this inside of Israel, were theists, and everything was being controlled by the gods. Every battle was a battle of the heavenly realm. That's a little foreign to a naturalistic Western context like most of us are like we're growing up in and like to, as being inculcated within the education system. What else? Who was Israel under the oppression of? Who was Israel under the oppression of? So if we're reading Exodus, we get a different answer than if we're reading Zechariah. And yet we know in both contexts they are slaves. Nehemiah Uses that exact language. We are slaves. And it echoes the slavery in Egypt, but now Persia and not Egypt are the oppressors. So that's a historical context question. What else? What's drawing their heart away from the real God towards the God? Okay, what exactly is drawing their heart? Why was idolatry so attractive in the ancient world? Have you ever thought of that? Just, just to pause and consider. Why was idolatry so attractive? The fact that sex was a big part of it? The fact that it was so normal. Everybody had the view of multiple gods. And then Yahweh shows up to Israel and says, I am it, and there is no God besides me. It was a lot easier to choose other gods than Yahweh. It was so much easier. There was such massive peer pressure to have such a broad pantheon. Not only that, if you happen to be sick, would you prefer to go to the general practitioner or to the specialist? Yahweh claimed to be in charge of everything. That's, there's a lot to cover when you're in charge of everything. Everything. But if you just go to Baal, he's the fertility god, and if you're struggling with crops, or if you're struggling with an empty womb, you can see why people would say, I'm gonna to go to the specialist. This is what Baal does all the time. His focus is fertility, period. The focus of the other gods, I'm assuming not personal bullets. For, for burden of having to um, obey God. Covenantal ethics is indeed distinct to Scripture. The gods were not looking for ethical living apart from serve me. But they could also be manipulated. But it was Yahweh alone who called for a radical surrender 24 7. And so. Worldliness is quite tempting. And that could easily draw away. All all those are historical context issues. What's a shekel? How long is a cubit? What was the price of slaves in the days of Joseph? Was the price of slaves in Joseph's day different than the price of slaves in Moses' day? Or how about in the Assyrian period? That's actually... The issue of the price of slaves and the domestication of camels. When did that happen? Those two issues are actually very significant historical context issues in arguing for the dating that the Bible most naturally presents itself of the Pentateuch. Of the first five books. People who want to say that the documents attributed to Moses including Genesis, which testifies to the days of Joseph, hundreds of years before Moses, who want to say that the Bible is not as old as it claims to be, and that it was written much, much later, not in the days of Moses, and that the testimonies of Joseph are not actually linked to actual space and time history, they end up with a big problem. Because... From Egyptian documents, we can pinpoint how the price of slaves actually went up between the days of Joseph and the days of Moses, and how different the price of slaves was from Moses all the way to the, to the Assyrian period. And what it would necessitate is someone is actually, I mean, they didn't have Google And yet, they are actually writing materials that are historically accurate for the time, even distinguishing the price of slaves in the days of Joseph from the days of Moses when he's writing the laws. That's fascinating. That's historical context. So, if you were to just run down the questions without context, what kinds of words would you use? Associated with historical context. Who? What? what? When? when? Where? Where? Why? Why? How? How? Bingo. So, who? We're talking about authorship, audience, major figures, and powers that show up in the midst of our reading. Where? We're talking about the physical location, the geography, the structures. Just this week, I was walking through my, my boys on Sunday, Saturday mornings. We um, have been working through various things. We did Revelation. I said, where do you want to go next? I I feared, as I told you months ago, that it was going to be Song of Songs. We didn't go there. And so we, this is my boys, and so we we went to Deuteronomy. And we just finished Deuteronomy 34 yesterday morning. And Moses goes up on Mount Nebo to Pisgah, which is another name for Mount Nebo. Maybe it was an actual point on the top of that mount. And it says that God showed him all the land that he had promised them. And he, he looked way north into Gilead, he looked way um, northeast to Carmel, all the way, sorry, northwest to Carmel, um, all the way down into Judah and Philistia, all the way further directly south into, sorry, I'm, my map is, got to turn it around for you. Um, so that directly south, so Philistia is over here and Carmel's up here and Galilee's up here and he's uh, just just um, north of the Dead Sea and it reached all the way down to the southern border. And so then I was thinking about, you know, did God kind of do um, a, a Superman-type experience for him? Because I know when you're standing on Mount Nebo, I mean, it's high, but it's not that high. You can't look at all those regions Looking 125 miles away, it's not that flat. There's mountains right in front of you. And so I was just just knowing a little bit of the historical geography, I was able to just say to my kids, how did that happen? But that's historical context informing the questions that we're asking. When? What was the original date of the message in relation to the periods and the powers and the events? Why? What was actually the cause and purpose of the message? How? What was the genre? What's the flow of thought? Why did he say it that way? That's that's one of the most dominant questions I'm always asking week after week when I'm looking at Scripture. Not just what did he say, but why did he say it that way? When he could have said it in other ways. And that gives clarity. It begins to guide our understanding of what's important in the text. Now, who, where, when, why, how... Where do we go to look for these answers? Join airs. Join Where does Diroshi go to look for those answers? <laughs> yeah, probably Teresa, exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> that is the answer I would hope for other books of the Bible. Before we go and pull out the Bible dictionary, go look and find where the Bible dictionary found its own answers. This is the means that God has given us to understand His Word. And what uh, Peter says, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, He's given us all we need for life and for godliness. There's some things that we can't learn about in here, like the specifics of how to do brain surgery. This morning, honestly, I was just standing back there and just looking up at how beautiful your hair is. And just remembering when Sharon didn't have hair. Because they had to ready her for surgery on her brain. And that God pulled her through that. Gave her a scar like her daughter's. And now her hair is just flowing and long. And God has preserved her life. Those doctors didn't look in here to know how to do that. But what they should have found in here was the fact that there is one who gave such wisdom. That every movement of that physician's hand was guided by a gracious God. And as this family testifies, there is preserving and healing grace. And all of it comes from our God. The Bible gives us a framework for understanding such things. But there are certain things it doesn't give us details for. But when it says certain things, the first place we want to go before we go outside And Bible dictionaries can be helpful. Study Bibles, massively helpful. But all of those resources are pulling from something. The primary place they're pulling is right here. But there are other things. Like in the last hundred years, massive hordes of covenant documents have been found. We've got the Dead Sea Scrolls that have informed much. In the region of Jonah, Nineveh, south of Nineveh, Babylon, these ancient sites have been culled of massive artifacts. So that now you go to the British Museum or you go to the Smithsonian and you see, like, you can't... um, go to northern Iraq right now, very easily anyway, in order to look and see what ancient Babylon and ancient Assyria and Persia were like. Instead, you go to the Smithsonian or uh, the British Museum and see everything's been moved across the world. And what we find are these amazing um, reliefs from temple walls amazing statues, all of which help give clarity to the time and the periods of the Bible. But I think it's very, very rare that we actually need those new findings to understand the main message of this text. What it would imply is that for centuries, people couldn't actually encounter God and understand His Word because they hadn't discovered 1969-ish, I think, that Pontius Pilate was a real person. That was the first time that they actually uncovered any ancient document. It was a stone relief that said Pilatos. And now we know Pilate was a real man. No, it was already in here, right? It was already in here, and it had been retained for the centuries in here. And we can learn about him from this book before we go to Josephus or Philo, both of whom were writing at the same time these New Testament guys were writing. This book contains massive amounts of geographical data, historical event data, details on specific persons, royal figures. In fact, if I could put a map up, just picture, if you can, from high school geography the Fertile Crescent. And you've got Mesopotamia over here and the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Desert right here, but that Fertile Crescent reaches around, the Mediterranean Sea is over here, and it, it goes down and crosses through what's called the land between Israel and then reaches over to Egypt. Egypt. The Fertile Crescent is the area where most of the ancient world lived because that's where the waterways were. And there was this giant Arabian desert here that blocked Mesopotamia from Egypt, the two major centers of all world power. And then there was the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, that made travel quite difficult. And so it forced everyone up north or everyone down south to cross through the land between, namely Israel. And that's why this book is so loaded with all the major events of the ancient world. All the major players are in here. So usually we don't have to go outside the Bible. We can use good study Bibles and good dictionaries to point us to the right texts. And you're going to see, I'm going to comment on where there is benefit... In our understanding of Scripture, when we find new things, when we dig new things up, there is benefit to that, but only in a certain way. With respect to the message of the text, I think this becomes our our toolbox for understanding specific other texts with respect to historical context. John? John? Some sense of gravity to an issue or so it's just a thought. yeah i I always learned it who, what, where, when, why, how, how often, to what extent, and on that list I just went through i didn 't include the what, and I want to camp on the what for a few minutes now. What is what is said and what is assumed that is it becomes important to actually read between the lines in order to rightly understand things. But we have to be very careful when we're reading between the lines that we're reading actually what's there and what's not there. So, elements that are important to remember. Number one, they are assuming linguistic familiarity. What are the three languages the Bible was written in? Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic and the biblical interpreter either needs to know those language languages or be able to rely on a translator who knew them well or who's working with other languages and I, there's complexity when you get inside of bible translation there's many bible translators who actually don't know Hebrew and Greek at all but the, but there's also helps, and it can work. It's just not ideal. And the, But there's an understanding of linguistic familiarity. That's how communication works. So without the knowledge of the language, and by God's grace, like in the days of Ezra, when his audience, after a few generations, had forgotten Hebrew... They spoke to them the law, and then they made it plain to them through explanation. I think what's happening is they're translating from the Hebrew into Aramaic so that everybody in their audience can understand. When Moses says, I'm not a good speaker, it's very possible that after 40 years in the wilderness, he couldn't remember Egyptian, and he feared getting back into the king's court and not being able to talk right. That's possible. Then we've got everything that happens at Pentecost. They they speak and people can actually hear in their own tongue. We are not Muslims who think that the holy book only works in Arabic. By God's grace, it's able to translate and be God's word to us. Who's they? Translators. That is fully dependent on the translation theory. So I, I wrote a paper once wrestling specifically with that question. It was... This is why when I was doing my PhD, I was called the circumcision doctor. Um, I wrote this paper on circumcision in the Hebrew Bible and the Aramaic Targums. It's very weird that this word can talk about circumcision in relation to the heart or in relation to the ears or in relation to the lips. So my question was, how did the Aramaic translators handle those metaphorical uses? Do they make them more concrete or do they leave them abstract? And as a whole, the Aramaic translators made them more concrete. So rather than talking about circumcision of the heart, it would say God will make them loyal to him. But not all translators do that, but some do. And so it it really depends on um, whether the translation is formal, dynamic, or even further, um, like a paraphrase. Right, it's going to say circumcision of the heart, and even the NIV is going to still retain that. But when you get into something like the New Living Translation, I imagine that you're going to see increasingly a number of the metaphors made, made more uh, pointed, but then you're piercing. Yep, then the translator is interpreting. And that's the, always the challenge. Do I leave the interpretation up to the, to the pastor or to the layman who's doing their devotions or do I help them and give clarity to what might be a foreign image? And there's strengths and weaknesses of both approach. Linguistic familiarity, worldview. Shared values, perspectives, mindsets, outlooks. I already commented on the fact that they were all theological. None of them were atheological. Everyone in the ancient world had a view that the gods were operative everywhere. What everyone didn't have was the view that there was actually one ultimate God over all things. And any other spiritual divine beings were subordinate. Creations themselves. That was Distinctive to Israel. It well, when did it happen that we moved from believing in something to believing in nothing? On a whole, in the West, it happened most of all in the mid seventeen hundreds up to the end of the eighteen hundreds, in what we call the Enlightenment. Enlight- it's it's ironic. The the enlightenment is that all of a sudden our need for God becomes smaller because we can explain more in nature and in history by the details of science. And so we don't need the God card to explain realities when when what it should have been doing is expanding our awe of His bigness and His ability to hold all of these details down to subatomic particles under his absolute care and sovereignty. I find it Bruce. really ironic that so many times I've seen you know, big scientific explanations for things and then their conclusion could be quoted right out of the Bible. And yet, you know, that's supposed to discount the Bible right. instead right. of, you know, raise it up. right. Because their deeds are evil. That's right. Shared assumptions. Societal and economic systems. The Bible talks all the time using financial figures. Even the concept of slavery. The ESV is going to say, this was a day's wage. It'll put a little footnote in there. Or... Always, they say, it's this many kilograms. And I'm like, I don't think in those categories. Give me pounds. That's what I wish. But the ESV still uses kilograms, which serves most of the world. Um, The whole concept of slavery, when it's often voluntary, and the ESV puts a little mark that says bond servant down at the bottom, trying to identify, don't use your concept of racially prejudiced slavery when you're reading that term in Scripture. That's a historical context question that demands uh, clarity and wrestling. But we come in taking a term and, and all of a sudden having a framework for how we're thinking what it's talking about when it's not. So, issues of common history of families or groups, marriage and family patterns, gender roles, social status, ethnicity, trades, vocations, slavery, wealth, and poverty all of these are societal and economic systems that are often assumed that you understand what the Bible's talking about. And we are distanced from such a world. Behavioral patterns like dress and community and family customs, the whole idea of head coverings, that's foreign. Too many. Political climate. Governmental power centers. Most of us don't think about the city gate as actually being a place that someone could go into. In fact, the ESV, when it, when it comes to uh, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength, these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall... Write them on the, do- on the doorposts of your house. And the ESV says, and on your gates. But the preposition actually changes to in your gates. So where you might be thinking of picket fence or even large city wall, the city, city gate that opens up like we might see in uh, Lord of the Rings. You know, they're trying to keep the city and But a city gate actually was built into a wall that was maybe 25 to 30 feet thick. And you would actually walk down an alleyway that has all these corridors in it where the elders of the land would sit. And that's where politics happened. That's where uh, land purchases were settled. In the city gate. And that's where the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31, her husband sits among the elders of the land in the city gate. But when we see it, it, it's just foreign to us. And the ESV translator didn't even account for the switch in preposition. I don't know if he just wasn't thinking or if she just wanted to speak more clearly. I I don't know. In, In a way that we could understand. But in my mind, it actually separates the historical context and breaks down our understanding of what it's actually referring to. Religious practices, convictions, rituals, affiliations, personnel and sacred structures associated with Israel or her neighbor's worship. These are all elements of the text that are historically related that we need to understand sometimes in order to properly grasp our passage, and finally physical features like climate and weather. And then we face the challenge of knowing that animals, plant life that used to be in the Middle East may not be there anymore due to the exploitation of land. Ethiopia used to be filled with big games. Now they are no more. Kenya has been dwindled down to just a very small area where you can actually go and see big big animals. Most of it is now desert. Just gone. And the same things happened in Israel. We read in here about wildlife, about trees, and you go there and so much of it is gone. So, We just need to keep our eye, even weather patterns, topography, architecture, transportation, plants and animals. This is all historical context stuff that we need to be good studiers of the word in order to understand what's important, what's not important. And you might spend a whole morning trying to figure something out, and in the end, you're like, huh, well, it really didn't help me understand my passage. You learn more, but... Our goal, and my goal as a teacher when I'm doing historical context, is only to mention in a sermon or in a lesson that which actually informs. So how much historical information is actually necessary as we approach a biblical text? Well, that's a question, and people uh, discuss that. What I would encourage you to do is say, are there clues within the literary context of this book that that information is actually important? So let me give you an example. I did this study and I actually, when I started it, I didn't. I thought I was going to write the opposite answer. So the question I raised was, is it significant to know that when Ezra journeyed from Babylon, Ezra, the priest scribe, In the second return to the land, Haggai and Zechariah, Joshua and Zerubbabel had all already gone. Now, 70 years later, Ezra is on his way. Is it important to know that from Babylon to Jerusalem is 900 miles? That is 1,448 kilometers. Is it important for us to know that? Because it never mentions it explicitly in Ezra Nehemiah. So I say, well, they didn't mention it explicitly, but is it an assumption that is demanded if we're to grasp Ezra Nehemiah rightly? So I step back and I I began to find some things. And I don't think that the 900 miles, like, like that specificity, is actually important, but it is important that we recognize this was a long way and that it was through dangerous desert. Like it assumes that we're going to know something about where Babylon was and where Jerusalem was and what the topography was and what, that, that it was a very long distance. For example, this is what we read. In the rest of Ezra and we see this stress that uh, on, on the nature of the journey, and it actually plays part, a role in, in communicating the message of this book. It was only because the good hand of his God was on him that Ezra and his company made it safely to Jerusalem, we're told. Now, we would we could step back and say, well, of course, we don't make it anywhere unless the good hand of God was on him. But But in the context, it's actually identifying the dangers and that it maybe wasn't expected that he would make it all the way. That's Ezra seven nine. Here's Ezra eight, twenty one. I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God to the whole company, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Because I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him. And the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. He was nervous and he wanted to make sure everyone was equally dependent on God. I've just cut off our tangible safety net. I didn't ask the king for soldiers. Exactly, we're entering into a dangerous place. So we need to fast and pray that God will keep us safe. So Ezra's move from Babylon to Jerusalem was less like a journey across town and more like a journey between states. But then you do it with over 2,000 people, camels and donkey carts. Just having that framework, when you're reading the text in your devotions, it all of a sudden gives clarity to his own desperation when he's talking to the community and feeling the weight of the fact that, God, I just, I just said you're big enough to keep us safe. And honestly, I'm nervous about this because there's so many lives at stake. And these are dangerous this is a dangerous journey through dangerous land and harsh weather. All of that is assumed. Even if we don't go outside the text to actually identify, say, turn into the back of your Bible. Some, some Bibles actually have a distance chart. So you can say, find on the, is X and Y, is X on the side or on the top? I, I don't remember. Um, X is this way and Y is this way? Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, So you look on the Y side and all the cities are mentioned, all the major cities of the ancient world, and you look at the X side and all the major cities, the same major cities are mentioned, and then you you bring them together and what you find is a distance. Without even having to look at such a chart, just reading the text, there's enough data in the text to guide us into recognizing it was a long ways and it was dangerous. And that's an assumption of the author. He's, he's assuming that we're going to know that. And so I went in thinking, this is probably a piece of data that I, a piece of datum that I don't need to know. 900 miles. Well, all of a sudden I'm, I'm reading the text and I'm like, it actually, I think is assuming that I have some grasp of the significance of this kind of a journey. Um, that, there's where I, I, I would propose as I stand up here regarding Psalm 23, that at least on my reading, that is probably historical context gone awry. That the text actually doesn't say the valley of the shadow of death, but it says the valley of deepest darkness in the Hebrew text and I've never heard any scholar identify it with a specific place but that it's actually a general statement speaking about broad troubles not specific ones but where such specificity is assumed then we would want to know it Um, I'm just not sure I might learn something new but I'm not sure that would be an example of such specificity.: Even if general reference to people there would what it's like: Without question, the people living there, in contrast to most of us, to talk about a valley of deepest shadow, put it in the context of shepherding. That, that's not uh, I mean, it, it takes I mean, you've, you've got to go up and land your back in your canoe in the boundary waters. If you've never done it to see what blackness is and to see how bright stars can be, that, that takes you it, it lets you experience something. Um, a couple weeks ago, our, we, we took our kids to check out a school. We stopped in the middle of Iowa in order to switch drivers. Isaac was done with his three and a half hours. We're trying to get his time, you know. And uh, we switched drivers. Dad took over. This is not a normal... I and mean, we're just on 35. But it was like, as pitch as black can get, there's no streetlights anywhere. And, but to have journeyed on such valleys, in the blackest of black when the shepherd fires are no longer seen. And yet, there is something about... Somehow, we as a reader have to try to put ourselves into the context. And both comments do that for us. They remind us, let's slow down a little bit and consider what we might often miss. The Bible is sufficiently clear... Traditionally, theologians have called this, this is a big word, but I'm going to mention it because you'll see it sometimes, the doctrine of Scripture's perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. But when we talk about the Bible's clarity, we're saying that the Bible is sufficiently clear to allow us to grasp the absolute sovereignty and supremacy and beauty of God And the Bible is sufficient to help us grasp His purposes from Genesis to Revelation, from creation through the fall, through redemption to consummation, all climaxing in Jesus. That the Bible is sufficiently clear to give us that. But the Bible is not equally clear about everything. So Wayne Grudem has framed it this way. I find it helpful. He said, we can understand Scripture... We can understand Scripture. Let's just pause there. Some of things in Paul's letters, Peter says, are just difficult to understand. But don't stop there. Which the the unstable and ignorant twist to their own destruction. What does that imply? Though they be difficult to understand, we can understand them. But there are certain things about God, even in the text, that are less clear. So this is how Grudem words it. We can understand Scripture, but not all at once. But not without effort. Not without ordinary means. Meaning, study. Timothy, think over. Think, think, think over what I have said to you. For. God will give you understanding in everything. God's giving understanding does not thwart the necessary work of thinking. But once we arrive somewhere, we pause and say, thanks be to God, He just disclosed that to me. He let me understand something I'd never known before. Not without ordinary means, We can understand Scripture, but not without the reader's willingness to obey it. This is a different kind of book. Tom Boyer started this morning talking about stories and how we can love stories. I just want to add, this is a different kind of story in a different kind of book. There is no story in no book laid out like this one. It does, there's no other story, no other book, that comes from the source, that this one does. There's no other story, no other book, that bears the same authority, that this book does, because it's the word of the living God. And we have to have a disposition, that is willing to accept, what's in here, in order to actually arrive, at what the intention, of the author is. He didn't just give it, In order to convey information, he gave it in order to awaken relationship. There has to be a heart of surrender in order to understand the book. We can understand scripture, but not without the help of the Holy Spirit. We can understand scripture, but not without human misunderstanding. Hear that. I believe that only believers should be baptized. Those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised them from the dead. But we have lots and lots of brothers and sisters who are Presbyterians who think you can baptize a baby who has never trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the fulfillment of all their promises, even eternal life. And I don't think I've misunderstood that doctrine, but I may have. We can understand Scripture, but not without human misunderstanding. It doesn't mean that God's wrong, it means that we are fallible interpreters. So we have to have epistemological humility. In our quest for knowing epistemology, we need to have a recognition that I don't have the corner on the truth. But this book delivers it to me and it's my responsibility day after day after day to have a heart that is ready to submit wherever it leads. Finally, we can understand Scripture but never completely. We're going to continue to go deeper in and higher up in, ever-present, in ever-increasing discovery. So, Let's consider some spheres of historical context. This is kind of bringing some things together that we've seen. Number one, a proper grasp of linguistic signs. Historical context just necessitates understanding the word rightly. And it might come to us through translation, like it does here in this ESV. But someone back there needed to wrestle with the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic in order to ensure that this is right, this is the Word of God, insofar as that that it aligns with the original. Because God spoke to us, not in English, but in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Historical context demands a detailed grasp of persons, institutions, and events in Scripture. So, that just means we're going to be reading, and always thinking. I've been saved since I was five. That puts me at four decades of pursuit of the Lord. And yet, I'm constantly seeing things in here that I, don't, I still don't get. I still don't know. I still have so many questions. And we're all going to be on that journey, so don't give up. Just keep learning. But with historical context, don't let your quest be, I've, I just found out um, who Maher Shalal Hashbaz was. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's not our goal. Bible trivia is not our goal. Um, our goal... <laughs> what? Maher, Sh- Maher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> My Barbary, yes. Um, it was Isaiah's second son. And he has four names. And he anticipates the, uh, the, next, the, the next one who would come who has four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, Maher Shalal, Hashbaz. It's like booty, spoil, haste, and something else. And it's not even in that order because these aren't normal Hebrew words. Anyway... There it is. I shared historical context and it had nothing to do with the lesson. So it was unnecessary. Um, a general awareness of life in the created world. The Bible assumes that when it says, go to the ant, you sluggard, that you may have tasted what it means to be a sluggard and that you know what an ant is. It's, it act, like the Bible assumes that you're living in the world that these authors were living in. The heavens are telling the glory of God. That you actually know what those are. Look to the birds. Consider the sparrow. The Bible assumes that we live in the real world and it doesn't have to describe each creature. It assumes that we're having encounters with them day in and day out and that that's part of the means for helping us understand the book. And finally... A proper approach to extra-biblical data. Extra-biblical means the actual parts of historical context that we're actually gaining from outside the Bible that we wouldn't find in here. I just want to give you a quick example of that. In Ezekiel chapter 1, there is a description that's given to us he sees a storm cloud and then he gets shot inside of this storm cloud. It was the cloud of glory. You remember how God led Israel out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So at nighttime, you could actually see the glory of God emanating from this cloud well Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1 he actually gets to see what's inside the cloud he gets shot inside of it and what he finds are a bunch of living creatures that's how he describes them that have human form with a human face but then on the other side of them there is on the right side a I just want to get the animals right in in the right order. Um, four faces, four wings, and each had a human face. The four had on the right side the face of a lion. On the left, a face of an ox. And then the face of an eagle. I mean, this is a weird creature. This isn't Anne of Green Gables. This is like Lord of the Rings. Etched up, right? You see this four-faced being with multiple wings and then they're flying around and above them is an expanse. And above the expanse is seated one like a Son of Man. Glorious, with rainbows and shining, emanating from Him. Now you read Ezekiel 1 and... It would be very difficult to draw. Many people have tried to paint this picture. It's even the Hebrew staggers. It's as if Ezekiel, even in the way that he writes the text, is is calling us into the awe of the moment. And what is unquestionable is that there is one who is seated above these heavenly beings. And the beings... Living creatures represent, it appears, the four spheres of human existence. There is the man, then the king of the wild, the lion, the king of the domesticated, the ox, the king of the air, the eagle. All of them are creatures made by God, now bound up in these living beings, worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's seated on the throne with rainbows all around, declaring with his bow, his bow, it's not pointed down, it's pointed up. It's still pointed up. Just as it was after Noah's flood. We see that and we say, This is a depiction of the exaltation of God over all things and all the heavenly beings are merely His servants. They're worshiping Him. And whether you were John Calvin, or go back a thousand years to Augustine, or go back 500 years to Paul, or 500 more years to Ezra, you could see the depiction in Ezekiel 1, And recognize the message. You could preach this text, but only in the last 150 years have we found a whole bunch of reliefs. These are etched pictures on stone walls in the temples of Babylon. In the very days of Ezekiel, and what we see, if I could show you the pictures, you can come up and see, but... These are multi faced divine beings. Two faced divine beings. A composite figure with a human head, a lion body, and eagle wings. A composite figure with an evil head, eagle head, a human body, and multiple wings. A composite figure with eagle wings and a lion head, but a human body. Now an ox head. An ox body with small wings. Now an eagle head with a human body and wings. We didn't know about these. And what I would propose is you don't need to know about them in order to read Ezekiel 1 and see that Yahweh is being exalted over all. All other creatures are merely His servants and He is worthy of all worship. But now, now we have the newspaper headlines from Babylon. We can actually, this is how I understand historical context outside the Bible actually working very often. What it does is it doesn't give clarity to the message of the Bible. What it actually does is give clarity to how that message was being read at that particular time. We don't need the extra biblical evidence to understand what it's saying, but now what do we know? Now we know that in the very days of Ezekiel in Babylon, the gods were understood to be composite figures. And Ezekiel portrays the spiritual beings like those figures. But they are mere servants in Ezekiel 1. He's actually targeting, even correcting, a paganistic warping of what may actually be, yeah, the angels might look like that. But they're not God. They're not the source of all things. They're not the judge of the world. Why are you worshiping mere servants when you should be directing your eyes to the King of Kings? The message of Ezekiel hasn't changed. But the fact that we find these release all of a sudden informs our reading because Ezekiel was writing at that exact time period. When the headlines came out in the morning, the gods who were in control of all things were being pictured like this, page after page in the newspaper. And now God gives Ezekiel this particular vision to target his culture. It's that polemic, that that rhetoric that we might often miss if we don't know historical context. But gaining this, it doesn't change the message. Calvin, Augustine, Paul, all of them could have preached Ezekiel 1 faithfully and rightly. But now, in God's providence, He's let us find some pictures of what the gods actually looked like in Babylon. And all of a sudden, it's informing our reading of Ezekiel 1. Our time is up way up. May the Lord bless you. Literary context next week. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Daroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.